Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail. New Zealand's only radio observatory. A few huge satellite dishes off the beaten track at the far north end of Auckland. What are they used for? Trying to find alien life? Discovering the far-flung spots in the galaxy? Well, part of it's used to help us navigate our lives through GPS and a controversial decision to close it by the Auckland University of Technology may have stuffed that up. Now, closure seems to be off the chopping block with a potential new operator on the scene, but what would have happened if it shut down? And do these huge funding issues universities face mean these important institutions are at threat? The New Zealand Herald science reporter Jamie Morton broke the news on its potential closing. I think anybody who's been to the observatory, which you'll find about 70 kilometres north of Auckland, are two very large radio dishes or radio telescopes. Um, You know, it looks like something out of that movie, uh, The Dish from the 90s, if anyone remembers that. This is the incredible true story of what we didn't see. Parks Australia had the only dish on Earth capable of broadcasting the moonwalk. The moonwalk? Ah. What's it doing in the middle of a sheep paddock? Essentially, these used to be long-range communications dishes, once which actually broadcast the 1974 Commonwealth Games when they were held in Christchurch. But have since been repurposed by AUT into a radio astronomy observatory. We'll get back to Jamie soon, but let me bring in Richard Easter, who's a professor of physics at the University of Auckland. He specialises in astrophysics and cosmology, everything from the Big Bang to how galaxies form. He says the collection of giant dishes is a New Zealand landmark. That was an iconic structure for New Zealand. It was on stamps. It was seen as a kind of a mark of our kind of progress as a nation, I guess. What does it do? Oh, well, it's a radio telescope. And so what it does, uh, or at least one of its uh, primary focus is uh, observations of the universe in radio waves rather than optical light, which is, you know, what a traditional telescope does. But there are lots of objects in space that produce uh, more radio waves than they do light. And so by observing those, you can learn new things about the universe. The radio telescope is often something that can also be used to um, communicate with spacecraft because spacecraft, you know, communicate with the ground primarily by radio. Some Occasionally um, there are optical communications being developed, but primarily by radio. The observatory is basically New Zealand's only radio astronomy observatory. Uh, there are plenty around the world, and this is the only one here. Over time it's been used to support various space projects, like launches by Elon Musk's SpaceX. And liftoff of Starlink 2-6, go Falcon, go Starlink. Only a couple of years ago, it became home to New Zealand's first practical space course in space exploration. Um, But another very important function of the observatory, which is a little bit more complicated, is um, collecting raw data that's important for uh, the global geodetic community. So Walkworth happens to be one of the very few sites in the Southern Hemisphere that collects this data. And this is really important for things like uh, the accuracy of global navigation satellite systems. You know, we can think of GPS as one good example. Today, it only takes one magical technology to get driving directions, send your picnic spot to a lost friend, or track how far you've gone during a workout. That technology is called GPS. Once this data is collected from Walkworth's telescopes, uh, 
it's sent overseas to correlation centres uh, where it's essentially turned into what are called reference frames. And reference frames are really what underpin systems that are used to detect the tiniest measurements in the Earth's surfaces, like um, you know tectonic motions. Uh, absolutely essential for you know navigation. It's also been involved in various um, radio astronomy projects uh, and international collaborations. Uh, one of them was actually helping with a international project to map the structure of the Milky Way. At first glance from Earth, it looks like a wide path of light. The ancients once described as a river of milk. And as it turns out, this international project couldn't actually be completed without the data collected from Walkworth that would be fed into it. Does it also listen out for aliens, by any chance? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a big question that... that um, has continually come up and you know for instance the the plan to build the world's largest radio telescope something called the square kilometer array that was probably one of the more populist questions that scientists behind that um get answered but actually yes that is one of the things that they talk about you know this the square kilometer array could be one way that we are able to detect you know signals from far across the universe tell me a bit more about that square kilometer array and what the kind of focus of that was. For decades, scientists and engineers from all over the world have been developing a radio telescope so large and powerful that it will be able to see almost all the way back to the beginning of the universe. This telescope is known as the Square Kilometre Array. Yeah, so actually a major reason for AUT uh, repurposing uh, what was a comms dish into a into a radio telescope. A, a big reason for doing that was actually because New Zealand once had a opportunity to co-host this uh, square kilometre array. Essentially, we can think of this array as the world's biggest telescope, really, and it's, it's it will be spread across a very large area, and um, its purpose would be to um, gather radio signals across a very vast area of land, and it would cover you know, a, a very large area of space. At the time, it was seen as a pretty huge opportunity for radio astronomy in New Zealand. But we missed out, really, when it was decided that Australia and South Africa would actually go on to host the telescope. So that left scientists here to keep working on the project until the government eventually decided there wasn't enough value uh, for taxpayer money to keep going into it, and it backed out as a member in 2020. The government is cutting back on its commitment to the world's largest radio telescope. Cabinet papers obtained by RNZ News show that MB advised the government's full membership wasn't worth the $30 million cost, and the cabinet agrees. So that kind of left the observatory without a lifeline? Well, that's right. That, that happened to be one of the reasons why AUT ultimately went ahead um, with its plans to close the observatory. Well, let's talk about the rationale behind closing it then. Why did they want to close it? What were the reasons? I think it came down to value and how it aligned with what it called uh, its future direction. So as part of the university's wider restructure... AUT is warning it might have to slash as many as 230 jobs as part of its post-COVID recovery plan. The university said it's seen a significant drop in international students throughout the 
pandemic, lockdowns and border closures. A big part of it was finding or, or, or developing research groups that could work across different disciplines to address what it described as social, environment and economic challenges. So it was more or less just trying to align its research efforts and steer them in a, in a particular direction. But, you know, there's no doubt that the cost of operating the facility would have been a huge factor and the university would have been basically looking at this observatory they have and thinking, you know, is this giving us the benefit and the value that we need? But it's New Zealand's only radio astronomical institute, isn't it? You'd think it'd be pretty important to them. Yeah, well, that's right. And, I mean, there are lots of international uh the collaborations that it's been part of that have been very valuable. And um, there are further, you know, space missions coming up, such as some the NASA are planning that this observatory um, could play a pretty important role in. For radio astronomy in New Zealand, this is basically the centrepiece of it. And when it was learned that the observatory could be about to close, we saw a pretty large response from the New Zealand astronomical community from what I was able to discover through documents I obtained through the Official Information Act was there was a large degree of concern, um, especially from the international geodetic community. They they were basically looking at the loss of this key source of data and thinking, okay, how is this going to make our measurements less accurate, you know, given that we don't have this data coming in? I think, as I said, you know, it's one of the very, very few sites in the southern hemisphere that collects this data, so that that triggered, you know, quite quite a large amount of concern. Um, there was also concern in terms of other efforts that the observatory and its team was involved in. Um, you know, one top US astronomer said that the importance of the reference frame that this observatory supports just that that, that importance just essentially couldn't be overstated. Another said that if this data stops being collected from Walkworth, uh, it would take years to compensate for the loss that scientists basically describing a data hole that this observatory's closure would create. What was the government's reaction when they were told this? The, the, the government response is quite interesting because at the time that I first learned about this closure, I mean, my focus was very much on the fact that this is our only radio astronomy observatory. And so with the loss of this observatory uh, would be the loss of radio astronomy in New Zealand to a large degree. Um, so my focus was very much on, you know, this this very large area of science. This is this is how this is our contribution to that that field, and that contribution will essentially be lost. Um, what I wasn't aware of at that point was the fact that the government were very very concerned. Uh, at the loss of this particular geodetic function. Um, and so when they realised that this, this service was about to be lost, they began scrambling to try to find a solution that would keep them running and suggested that the observatory's closure be delayed in the meantime. The emails I got back through the OIA show plenty of back and forth between different officials across various agencies like MB, also the New Zealand Defence Force, and they were really just scrambling to try to come up with some kind of solution, some new operator that could take this complex on and keep these services running. Interestingly, you know, the the OIA documents also show that AUT's own commercialization arm 
put a funding proposal to MB, uh, which talked to the value that could be gained from getting that data from the observatory. But, you know, within a matter of days, that proposal was retracted. And then AUT went ahead and decided to close the observatory by Christmas. Since uh, that happened, of course, you know, there's been further negotiations. And as it's turned out, the observatory never closed, um, although some staff were made redundant. Okay, so what, where are we at now? What's happened? There are negotiations still ongoing. They're in their final stages. But the short of it is that the observatory's major new operator will be an organisation called Space Ops New Zealand, which happens to be a subsidiary of Southland's regional development agency. Um, so Space Ops is hoping to take over the site by June, and it seems keen to keep supporting radio astronomy uh, from the site and in New Zealand. As for that geodetic function that you know worried officials so much, um, MB tells me that talks are still on the way to ensure that um, this geodetic work essentially keeps running from New Zealand. So a lot of those fears from those international scientists that were worried about this disruption should hopefully be allayed. Okay, so yeah, it seems like they've saved the day. Do you look at it that way? Yeah, I, I, th- I think you could look at it that way. Essentially, this was the solution that the government and AUT were trying to work, work towards. Um, I think in those those crisis days, uh, over August and September, it very much looked like uh, we were about to disrupt these these critical global systems by <laughs> shutting down this observatory. I think that, that now is not going to happen. But essentially, what, what we saw is you know just just another instance of a critical science service provided from New Zealand. Um, that was vulnerable because it was under the auspices of a university looking to cut costs. Well, that's a sad thing, isn't it? I mean, universities are supposed to be bastions of human knowledge and research, aren't they? They're supposed to be these places where we find out these things and this is what we use universities for. So what do you think it says that universities don't value that in this regard? It's a complex issue because I think universities have overheads and universities, they need to basically be looking at what value those universities are reaping from what they offer. That can come into conflict with critical science. So as we saw here, we saw a critical function provided by this observatory, but which was nonetheless you know, seen as not aligned with AET's direction, or that it just didn't see enough value in this observatory to keep it running. It's a pretty common and familiar story throughout New Zealand science, to be honest. Um, you know, there's, there's been a few instances in the last few years in particular, uh, we have seen basically conflicts of important science versus science that is, you know, valued by universities. Um, and in some cases, these lessons have been learned far too late. You know, one classic example was the fact that when COVID-19 first broke out, New Zealand essentially didn't have a dedicated infectious disease modelling unit that could give the government the data that it needed. And therefore, we saw Professor Sean Hendy and his colleagues at Tapunaha Meditini stand up a team at pretty short notice. I got in touch with Juliet Gerard, the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, and started talking to her. And then questions started coming back the other way. Could you look at this scenario? Could you look at that scenario? And then I gradually realised that there, there just weren't a lot of modelling tools around and available and being used. Um, and so at that point that's where I started having serious conversations with people about crash-starting this modelling program. There's been other instances of globally important science coming under threat with recent cost-cutting restructures at other universities like Massey and Waikato. Non-academic staff at Massey University are fighting proposals to cut more than 70 jobs across campuses and substantially alter 
others. Their union says many of the roles are essential positions held by highly experienced staff. The news comes as Massey faces a financial black hole. The, the general problem seems to come down to funding. Um, what, little, what little funding there is is spread thinly across our science system, uh, which includes things like Crown Research Institutes like NIWA. It's fair to say that we rely too much on underpaid, overworked PhD students at universities who do much of our heavy lifting but live contract to contract. And while we've seen moves to do science more smartly in New Zealand through efforts like the National Science Challenges or Centres for Research Excellence, a lot of these core structural issues remain. Richard Easter has some views on how astronomy can be funded properly. This is a challenge for New Zealand. You know, many astronomers will use the same facility. And so if you're running a lab in most aspects of biology, for instance, you might have a single researcher or group of researchers who work in a lab, and then there'll be another very similar lab potentially next door that may have you know, similar equipment. In the case of astronomy, we come together as a community to invest in assets that are then used um, as a community. Um, and in New Zealand, we've never really had a national strategy for figuring out what it is that we need as a community. And so there has been this problem that to do something at scale, you probably need to do something that's larger than the resources of a single institution. Um, and I think, you know, huge kudos to the people at AUT, I mean, particularly um, Sergei Galeev and Tim Natush, you know, who... It, you know, there's a huge amount of work in taking these old dishes and um, you know repurposing all this old dish because they built, they converted one dish and they built another one from scratch. Um, you know, converting those to radio astronomy. I mean, that's a significant technical feat. But in terms of its ability to then provide facilities to the rest of the community, um, you know, that wasn't something that happened. You know, pe- other people choosing how they can you know get the most impact out of their time had chosen to do other things. Mm-hmm. So what's this national conversation that we need to have? What is the issue that we're facing now? You know, there's an immediate issue that's been brought up around this particular piece of infrastructure. But I think the real challenge for New Zealand is that other countries see value in um, pursuing programs in fundamental science and so have a you know, national strategy that, you know, is a conversation or hammered out in a conversation between scientists and, and funders. And so the funders will expect you know, the work to align with you know, government priorities. Um, and the scientists typically will be aiming to do you know, simply the best and most exciting you know, science that, that you know, moves our field forwards. And so we, we've never really had that conversation in New Zealand. And so you know, individual institutions have, have you know, pursued individual strategies. So AUT has invested millions of dollars and building this asset, and I guess you know the other challenge is is to take, you know, once that amount of mu- public money has been spent, you know, they can't simply put the keys in the mailbox and you know and leave the site because technically it belongs to um, Spark, I guess. So, so they also have you know the additional challenge of being a you know proper steward of the resource that's been invested in that location, and making sure that you know whatever value it does is, is retained for the for the country and for the taxpayer. How can we have a coherent plan for the research that goes beyond just this one university? Ultimately, what you would like to do is to say these are the kinds of questions that we would like to be asking and answering. And then you figure out what infrastructure you need to, you know, to pursue those questions. And that process is kind of an evolutionary one. A lot of places call them decadal plans. So it's a plan that the field buys into that it essentially pitches to funders that it says, you know, these will be the benefits of pursuing that. And then that provides some stability for the development of assets and the development of the field that, you know, then contributes to the sort of, you know, overall good of the 
country through, you know, inspiring science, the technical spin-outs, training people, you know. So Australia, for instance, has a plan like this for astronomy and astrophysics, and we don't, and, and we never have. And so to some extent, the situation that we find ourselves in now is, is, is a result of that, um, you know, lack of cohesion. If there was a cohesive plan, then AUT would have been able to make better investment decisions about um, the development of walkways and you know, probably wouldn't be in the position that it finds itself now. So it's just a bit like, you know, I'm going to do my thing over here, I'm going to do my thing over here, and people aren't really talking. Um, yeah, and that, so the prompt for those plans always comes from, the, you know, from, from government and from funders because, I mean, as a field, we are working collaboratively. But if the government, you know, if the funding agencies say, as they do, for instance, in the United States, and I've been, you know, very much involved in some of those conversations when I worked in the US, um, you know, there's a lot of incentive for the field to produce a good plan because the funders have said, you know, like if, you know, if you come up with a convincing and compelling plan that looks doable, that it's genuinely ambitious, that but it can live inside of some budgetary envelope, then, um, you know, there's some reasonable expectation that that will be supported. But there's never been that, you know, that mutual conversation in New Zealand. So who's responsible for starting this conversation? Um, the, the field would love to start it. So, I mean, it would be very much uh, um, an opportunity for, for, um, for MB and other agencies to pick up the kind of where, you know, that we've laid down. You know, we, we'd, we've signaled, you know, going back over a decade that we would love to be having these conversations to, you know, to do the best that we can. And so there needs to be a, a sense that, um, you know, we're looking to support fundamental science in New Zealand. And that's that's something that, you know, individual fun- people working in particle physics or astrophysics have, you know, pursued programs and found support, but, you know, they've done that, um, you know, through their own um, initiative rather than through, you know, committed support for the field from the government. So, Certainly the Marsden Fund, um, you know, pays for individual research programs, but it doesn't pay for, particularly for infrastructure, and so that's, that's what gets left out. So, if the Walkworth site, the one that's so familiar to travellers on State Highway 1, was dismantled, what would we lose? I think it's probably mainly nostalgic in that sense. I think, you know, there are certainly people who remember being shown it as a kid. I mean, it's certainly true for me. But it is also true that, um, you know, that technology changes. And so because this is sort of big and iconic, um, I think, you know, the ability to contribute to the um, to the celestial reference frame is, is, is important. The ability, you know, if, if it turns out that this is a good way to communicate with spacecraft, um, you know, and, and if to, repl- you know, if we wanted a big dish and we needed that capacity, it would cost a lot of money to get that back. So I think we absolutely need, you know, to look as widely and creatively as possible to the ways that we can use these assets that have already been developed, you know, ultimately by either a at least at the time, a state-owned enterprise, or alternatively, um, you know, directly through the university system. So, you know, money's been invested in this. Um, you know, the one hazard, of course, is that then you wind up chasing some cost, and, and that's going to be something that, that requires more analysis than I've seen being performed so far. Would Goodnight Kiwi lose a place to sleep <laughs> in a satellite? Uh, the Goodnight Kiwi dish was a little one, wasn't it? It was one of those little microwave towers. So I think, good, I think the Goodnight Kiwi is fine. I think, I think whatever happens, Goodnight Kiwi is safe. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benge and produced by Alexia Russell, Bonnie Harrison and Sarah Robson. Thanks to Jamie Morton and Richard Easter. Ka kite anō.